The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. It's been months since we've been able to say our names at the end of the session, so <laughs> tonight we can go around and at least say our names, which will be nice. So I've been giving a series of talks on the Eightfold Path related to practicing in daily life. This is a central teaching that the Buddha used over and over again in terms of describing a path, a way of living and practicing. And it, the path is easiestly understood as three aspects, using awareness, the mind to cultivate wisdom, using the mind to cultivate samadhi, or concentration, or quiet, peaceful states, and using the mind to cultivate harmony in our lives, so that we're interacting with the world, with each other, in an intelligent and loving way that promotes harmony. So lately I've been talking about samadhi, this middle part of the path. How do we use the mind to promote peace or tranquility or clarity in the mind, this very useful tool to be clear, to see things as they are. The technical definition of samadhi really is to be free of hindrances. So it means that the mind is temporarily, at least, free of agitating qualities, disturbing qualities, distorting qualities. So it makes, it makes so much sense that as human beings, we'd want to get skillful at abandoning or uh, preventing the mind from falling into unwholesome qualities or unwholesome states and to develop wholesome states. So that the development of this clear, calm, peaceful mind, it's, uh, it's a real art and science. There's some clear... Uh, like markings on the road, like things we shouldn't do and things we might want to do. I mean, a lot of it is common sense. The interesting thing, to me at least, just in terms of my own life, is, I mean, I know, I know quite a bit about what's good for the mind and what's not so good for the mind. But it's interesting how I avoid doing the work, even though I know the work works and I know what it is. So there's... Uh, a certain amount of humility and respect we need for our habit energy, you know, that we do have some attraction to the disturbances in our mind. We like agitation. We like drama. We like, I mean, just watch, just notice the kind of movies. <laughs> you know, they're all charged one way or another. We don't have too many movies about equanimity. <laughs> Lynn and I recently watched several of the series. I think it was on HBO a couple years ago on Rome. Maybe some of you saw that series. And it's a little bit interesting in terms of the history, but and it's well done. I mean, they must have spent a, a ton of money making the production. But it's like uh, such a clear and dramatic example of our minds, of lust, of greed, of hatred, of revenge, of anger, of power, wanting power. And uh, 
just the, you know, the normal tendencies in all of our minds, given, you know, if, if we were wealthy and powerful, those tendencies would be acted out in greater, more dramatic fashion. You know, one of the advantages of being just an ordinary person is that when we're angry, we don't invade other nations, or <laughs> we might just, you know, be a little bit quiet with our partner or something. <laughs> so, uh, the last month or so, I was talking about right effort as a support for samadhi, for this quieting of the mind, cultivating of uh, cultivation of tranquility. Now I'm just going to take a different angle on developing samadhi, which is to look more technically at what we mean by mindfulness. What is mindfulness? And I want to look at the Satipatthana Sutta. This is a discourse the Buddha gave, one of the most famous talks he gave. And if we think of the Buddha as being a really skilled teacher, and this being one of his most famous talks, it makes sense that we'd want to look at this Dharma talk of his because uh, people have been benefiting it, benefiting from it for a long time. And the way the, the talk begins is, he's talking to his students, he says, uh, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow, lamentation, and for the disappearance of pain and distress for the attainment of the right method and for the realization of unbinding. In other words, the four foundations of mindfulness. Which four? There is a case where a practitioner remains focused on the body in and of itself, ardent, alert, mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. She remains focused on feelings, on the mind, on mental qualities, in and of themselves, ardent, alert, mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. So I'll keep reading a few more paragraphs of this, but I want to break it down and uh, get a sense of this basic strategy that the Buddha taught. I mean, he taught many different strategies, but the strategy, one of the strategies he kept coming back to is the development, the cultivation of mindfulness. And in this context of mindfulness of these four things, and the Buddha taught not just not only what we should be mindful of, but how we should be mindful. And it's really a matter of putting the two together, the what and the how together. Eventually, what we're mindful of is the how. Like we're, we're mindful of the mind itself, the mind being mindful. We can be aware of that, turning the mind back in on itself. But it's part of a development of the practice. It doesn't necessarily come first. So one thing to remember is that the word sati or mindfulness really comes or is, uh, I think, directly translated as to remember. And then it gets used, it, it, its way of being used changes. But I think at the time of the Buddha, the word meant to remember. And then it got put in the context of this meditation uh, practice. So it's keeping the moment in mind. 
And this really reminds of something essential about the practice. And I, I once heard someone talk about this in terms of the working ground. And I, th- I like that term, working ground. Like, What is the working ground of our spiritual life, of this process of transforming our life? The working ground is the present moment. And so mindfulness is keeping the present moment in mind, not forgetting the present moment. So it isn't so much what the present moment is, as much as it is about keeping it in mind. And it's not easy to keep the present moment in mind. Like even now, if I if, let's just take a do a 30-second <clears throat> little self-experiment. And I'll just talk for a few seconds, and then we'll do this experiment. But, you know, keeping the present moment in mind so you, you might want to use something as an anchor like just the sensations of the body or even more specifically the buttocks and the cushion. But as you're watching it for these 30 seconds, notice the tendency for the mind to move away from the direct experience of sensation to some interpretation of what you're doing or some judgment or some image. So you might even create an image of what you're doing So then you're not really aware of the sensation, but you're aware of the image. Now, the image is also something happening in the present moment. But when we mistake the image for the present moment, we're lost. But if we realize that the image we have in the mind of what we're doing is just an image, then we're in the moment again. Knowing that the mind is imagining the buttocks touching the cushion is being aware, is being mindful. Okay, so let's just take 30 seconds and we'll notice what the mind does. One of the reasons why mindfulness is such an important ingredient in this transformation of the heart, or this awakening process, is to what we need to do is understand what the problem is that we're trying to correct. And the problem we're trying to correct is that we keep misperceiving our experience, our situation. Precisely because the quality of attention isn't uh, doesn't have enough continuity. It keeps getting broken up due to the force of habit. And the primary habit the mind has is to keep moving, to kind of flit about this, that, this. And basically, it's a process of reacting. So something's being known. The mind reacts to what's being known. 
and then it reacts to the reaction and then reacts to the reaction of the reaction and on like that so that uh, there there isn't the kind of stability or continuity that allows things to be revealed as they actually are. So because we flit on the surface, we really never see what's there. And the thing that continuity, what continuity does, not even with one object, it's really continuity of the present moment awareness that's so transforming. What it does is it it reveals this lie or this misperception that we live with. Things appear to be the way that they appear to be precisely because we're not paying attention. And so the not paying attention is what keeps confirming our distorted or our incorrect, you know, or the Buddha would say, you know, our ignorant, deluded notions of things. But we're stumped because the disappearance the world does appear to be the way that we take it to be. But we never have cultivated the kind of steady presence that will reveal the world in a more accurate way. So instead of trying to figure out what is the nature of the mind or what is the nature of experience, the Buddha instead emphasizes cultivating the tool that will reveal things more directly, more clearly, as they are. Because trying to figure it out doesn't help. What helps is to develop the tool. And the tool is that steady presence or mindfulness. So I mentioned I read the first paragraph, a couple paragraphs. And then the Buddha says, And how does a practitioner remain focused on the body in and of itself? So there are these four parts that the the Buddha goes through, these four foundations of mindfulness. And they're really really two sets. If I can make my fingers do that. So the first three foundations of mindfulness, the body, feelings, and the mind, it's really just the body and mind except that the, bo- the mind is broken into two parts. We're noticing feelings, like whether our experience is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and then everything else about the mind. So he's just kind of pulling feeling out because it's an important aspect of what's happening in the present moment. Whether the mind is interpreting any experience as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and then all the other mental contents. And then there's the body, which means the five physical senses so we're paying attention to those three things. And then this fourth, fourth thing is sort of interesting. This is, it's really about the skillfulness in the mind. So this is also an aspect of the mind. But this is more about how we're paying attention. So we also need to pay attention to how we're paying attention, whether it's skillful or not, whether the way we're paying attention is skillful or not, whether it's distorted or not, whether it's leading to more clarity or less clarity. So that's what the fourth is. We call It's never really translated in a clear way, but sometimes it's called mindfulness of mental objects or mindfulness of mental qualities. Or sometimes the Pali word is used, mindfulness of dhammas. So we have mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feelings, 
mindfulness of the mind and mindfulness of mental qualities or the skillfulness or unskillfulness in the mind. And so the, the Buddha, for each of those, he talks about what you need to be mindful. He says, the monk or practitioner remains focused on the body in and of itself, ardent, alert, and mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. So let's look at what that means. So a person remains focused on the body or on the mind or on feeling or on these mental qualities, the skillfulness in the mind, in and of itself. So focused in and of itself, this is like the first insight is to just see that we can know the sensations of the body or the sensations of the breath in and of itself, free of our interpretation. And this is just learning the difference between our thoughts about the breath and the actual physical experience of sensation. And just to be able to distinguish the two clearly and quickly in the mind so that we can track the breath as sensation with some continuity, with you know, a few seconds at least, and then over time for longer periods of time. Maybe you notice that even in our little 30-second experiment, you know, how long was the mind able to track the sensations of the sits bones against the chair or cushion before it got some distortion? Like I noticed very quickly my mind got confused because my mind, I'm sure it's like a lot of other people's mind, my mind substituted an image very quickly. It's very hard for me to feel any part of my body without the mind creating like a image of that. And it's not even an image like you, you know, a drawing in an anatomy book or something like that. But it's just a, it's sort of a conceptualization of the paying attention to the actual sensation. Anybody know this experience? And so the question is, can we keep, it's not even that one is good and one is bad. The important thing is not to be confused by our experience, not to be confused uh, by the difference between physical sensation and mental projection, thoughts and images. We want to always know the difference, otherwise we're going to be confused by thoughts. That's why we have to know the difference. Again, not that thoughts are evil and sensations good. It's about not getting confused. So we can also be mindful of thoughts as just thoughts, but then we're not confused by the particular content of the thought or the particular content of the image in the mind. So keeping the, this, this first part of staying focused on the body in and of itself, we could say on the mind in and of itself, on the feelings in and of themselves, ardent, alert, and mindful. So ardent here really has to do with a kind of effort. And for those of you who've been around the last several weeks, effort in, in terms of meditation is, uh, it includes a wisdom this wisdom that knows, like, oh, this is unskillful, it should be abandoned. This is skillful, it should be developed. So this is what ardent means here. It's like taking responsibility to tease out in a skillful way 
unwholesome qualities in the mind. So that, like for example, in my 30-second practice with the sits bones on the cushion, you know, I mentioned how that image came in. I needed to abandon that tendency of my mind to want to go there, to not to sort of forget the actual feeling of sensation, of pressure, contact, weight. So, you know, there was an effort that my mind made, the effort to sort of bring the sensation back into the forefront of attention. That's a real effort. It takes a real dedication or wholeheartedness, a real not forgetting. You know, like keep putting that. Because the habit is to think about what I'm doing. It's all of our habits. And so we have to counter that habit with this present moment efforting, this not forgetting, this reestablishing of the of the foundation of mindfulness, like what we're paying attention to, keeping it in mind. Now, as the practice develops, this will be less important because whatever comes up, we'll just let that be the object or the foundation of mindfulness. But because our practice isn't so strong, it's good to work with specific anchors for periods of time because then we get to see like when I choose to pay attention to the breath with some continuity then I get to see the deluding influence of my thoughts about the breath or my images of the breath I see how it confuses the mind how it takes me out of the present moment and into thoughts about the present moment or thoughts about Dharma practice or meditation practice it's so easy I'm sure you've noticed this to spend your meditation practice thinking about being a meditator or thinking about meditating instead of actually meditating. Just like we can be in a relationship and spend most of our time thinking about being in a relationship instead of actually relating to another human being, like really showing up and feeling what we're feeling and seeing what we're seeing and you know having the experience of interrelating and on and on like this. I remember once swimming in the ocean and really loving it, but very quickly, like, I was thinking about swimming in the ocean, you know? I wasn't aware of this great feeling of just sort of floating in the waves and, you know, that whole trip. So, in a way, because of this tendency to go into this inner dialogue, inner narration, and then to not, of course, it means to not be aware of that, like we're there but not aware of it, we're really being lost. We're disconnecting from, from the lens. We're really losing our life in a very real sense. That's why awakening is such a useful term for this path. Like we're, we're awakening from the dream. The dream is the fixation on our thoughts or interpretation of our life as opposed to the life itself, the moment itself. So the Buddha gives us some flavors of how to how to create this wonderful balance that allows this life to be revealed, like to, to allow this awakening to happen, at least for a moment, moments at a time. You know, he talks about staying focused on the body, on the feeling, on the mind, in and of itself, ardent, alert, mindful. So I told you ardent is, ardency is this efforting, you know, to abandon what's unskillful, to keep putting the anchor in the forefront of attention. And um, 
alertness is really about, uh, it's like once we reestablish the present moment, alertness is this kind of interest. It's really, I think, love is an, an okay word here. It's like we're, there's a, uh, a real love, a real respect or devotion to the truth of the moment. It's like we're, re- we're willing to show up with interest. So the ardency is sort of giving us this chance for a moment of real connection. That's where the alertness comes in. Like, uh, but it takes an interest or a valuing. Like there's a value to being connected, to being open, to being empty. You know, we can't really connect and still be the witness over here, observing something over there. If we're really going to connect with our breath, with another human being, with the moment, we have to um, we have to be willing to sort of take the plunge. To to be, uh, and that's a kind of interest or a respect or devotion to the truth, love for the truth, not truth with like a, in a philosophical sense, but in a more, a much more immediate, direct sense of our lived experience. And then mindful, he uses that word mindful here, ardent, alert, and mindful. And here it's that technical meaning of mindfulness, like that intimacy, that coming, that connection, and then not forgetting it. That's the mindfulness part. So there's the connecting and then the not forgetting, like... Uh, because when we connect, then we, we sort of like want to step back and think about it. Oh, that was connection. Boy, that was great. But we want to connect and then connect and then connect. We don't want to feel like we have to let go. Like a, if you watch little kids, two-year-olds, three-year-olds, when they're around one of their parents, and they like to explore. I mean, children love to explore. But then they want to go back, you know, and get a hug from mom, you know. And then they then they go off, do their thing for a while, and then after a couple minutes or five minutes, then they, they come back, you know, and they sort of, I'm a little baby, I need love, or what, I don't know what's going on in their mind. But it's sort of, they've let go of this sort of uh, open awe exploration of their world, and they, they kind of pull back, and they, they seek that sort of security of what it is. And that's what we do with our thoughts. That's like our, gra- our great mom, <laughs> our great parent. It's like we feel safe only because we, we live there so much of the time. It's like our home and we feel safe there thinking, interpreting our life away. So the, there's an ardency which kind of gives the opportunity, creates the opportunity for a real connection and then there's the remembering, the continuity of that connection. This is the first part of mindfulness or this path of awakening. Focused on the body in and of itself, ardent, alert, mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. So this last phrase, putting aside greed and distress with reference for the world, is really saying what is now the effect of having done what I've just described. So when we focus on the body in and of itself, not our interpretation, and there's an ardency. So we're making this effort to be on the lookout for getting distracted and keep putting the experience in the forefront. And then with alertness, like a real interest, a real love for the truth, 
and then continuity, then that is the putting aside of greed and aversion for the world, in reference to the world. That means that when we're doing that, we've gone beyond good and bad, liking and disliking. When the mind is really intimate, like when we're even something like uh, delightful, like you're walking and it's just a beautiful day, and in a moment where you're not thinking that it's a beautiful day, but there's just the experience of beauty or of delight or happiness, but not a somebody who is happy or delighted. In that moment, there is no, it's not about I'm good or this is good or, you know, I want this to last. It's just what it is. So in a sense, we've stepped outside of this world of good and bad, greed and aversion. These two roots of a lot of our suffering, forms of greed and forms of aversion. So basically, it's, you know, there are two ways we suffer. One way is we want to get and hold on to what we like. And the other way we suffer is we want to get rid of, get away from the things we don't like, destroy the things we don't like. A moment of mindfulness is a moment of not doing that. So it's a it's a temporary moment of freedom, of enlightenment. If you want to know, you know, if we want to know what Nibbana is like, well, we can't know it, but we can get a sense of it by having a moment of mindfulness. Because in a moment of mindfulness, we have abandoned the tendency toward greed and aversion. So if it's really a moment of mindfulness, that means there's really no greed and aversion in the mind in that moment, for just that moment, that we're mindful. And then if we have some continuity, then there's some continuity of non-suffering or of uh, non-greed and aversion. And this is, like I mentioned earlier, this is really the first insight, is when we realize this moment of mindfulness is a moment of liberation. Like, oh, this is different than how I normally live. This is a different experience in the world. This is a feeling of, this has the taste of freedom, of buoyancy, of life, whereas the other moments in my life, they're marked maybe sometimes not so strongly, sometimes really strongly, but generally, one way or another, either strongly or not so strongly, they're marked with weight, with um, oppression, with heaviness, with worry and anxiety, right? So even our good moments are marked by that, have some quality of tightness or weight to them. So moments of freedom, moments of mindfulness, and the freedom that arise with those moments, they have a different flavor to them. Sometimes I like, you know, for my own insights, my own moments of freedom like this, I like to say that uh, sounds a little mundane, but it seems like the appropriate word to put on the experience, which is this pervasive feeling of okayness. Like uh, the world, the moment, is really okay. Like there's nobody disputing, nobody needing to push or pull with the way it is. And the feeling is that it's really okay. And when it's really okay, then we relax. You know, the non-relaxation in our life is because we don't think the moment's okay yet. You know, and even if it's a good moment, it's not okay because we've got to do something to make it last. So we're always opting for a stressful response. But when we realize in a moment of mindfulness that it's okay, we really relax. 
which is that flavor of freedom that I've been talking about. Here's what Tanisro Bhikkhu says about this. He says, the task here is a dual one. Remaining focused on one's frame of reference, like the breath or body sensation, and putting aside the distractions of greed and distress that would come from shifting one's frame of reference back to the world. In other words, one tries to stay with the phenomenology of immediate experience without slipping back into the narratives and world views that make up one's sense of the world. In essence, this is a concentration practice with the three qualities of ardency, alertness, and mindfulness devoted to attaining concentration. Mindfulness keeps the theme of the meditation in mind. Alertness observes the theme as it is present to awareness and also is aware of when the mind has slipped from its theme. Mindfulness then remembers where the mind should be focused and ardency tries to return the mind to its proper theme as quickly and skillfully as possible. In this way, these three qualities help to seclude the mind from sensual preoccupations and unskillful mental qualities, thus bringing it to the first jhana. Jhana is just a state of unification of mind, concentration of mind. So that's just the first stage. I'll mention one more, and then um, later I'll have to finish this talk. So the sutta, the discourse on the, the Satipatthana suttas goes on. And after each technique that the Buddha teaches, he kind of outlines the process of insight that somebody will go through. He says, in this way, he or she remains focused internally on the body in and of itself or externally on the body in and of itself or she remains focused on the phenomena of arising or the phenomena of passing away. So this is a second level of insight. So the first level of insight is just to see whatever experience that is, you know, our anchor, like the breath or sensation, to see it free of conceptualization. So not being confused by the thoughts or images, seeing it and having some continuity and in that continuity, noticing what it's like to put aside greed and aversion. Because in order to be mindful with some continuity, the greed and aversion, the pushing and pulling, the mind thinking about the experience in terms of who I am and what I like and what I don't like, that has to be away. That has to be dropped or abandoned. So we have a moment of just being, you know, like people talk about this in terms of being in the flow. Just being with things as they are. Being with the walking. What did my brother used to say when we were golfing? Be the ball. <laughs> <laughs> but then, what that continuity allows us to see then is this secondary insight. And the way it's described in the sutta is the phenomenon of origination and the phenomenon of passing away, or rising and falling, or things coming and going. 
this is a nietzsche or impermanence or the ephemeral insubstantial nature now this is one thing to talk about philosophically but with continuity of awareness we really see that and this is something else i noticed in my little 30 second experiment we did tonight you know the first thing i i mentioned is that i noticed this thought this image i had about since the sensations of the buttocks and then with some ardency i was able to turn my, put the actual sensations in the forefront of attention and connect and sustain the attention there and then the second insight started to reveal itself as i was then aware with some continuity i started to notice how insubstantial or ephemeral i mean superchin here if it was very real and solid and like yeah you know it's like hard my because that experience is involving my concept of bone and cushion and weight and you know those are all concepts it's not actually the actual experience and the more we have the continuity with the actual experience instead of seeing it as a thing you know we start seeing it as a movement of sensation and as movement it doesn't have the substance or concepts impute to the experience it's it's like um it's like a projection like when we if we could see right now a holographic projection in the middle of the room you know like in star wars when I forget who it was uh Obi-Wan Kenobi or one of those guys sort of appeared there you know as a hologram it's like you see it but there's really nothing there you can put your hand right through it it's just a projection in space and this is a little bit uh like the experience of this insight where on the, in the sense the body still represents the body there's still a sense of the body but it's not what we normally take the body to be and this is true with all experience whether you're paying attention to thoughts in and of themselves or sounds in and of themselves or feelings emotions in and of themselves as well as sensations in and of themselves what's revealed is the ephemeral or insubstantial or changing nature of experience and this is a deep and uh transforming insight that we can have hopefully thousands and thousands of times as the practice develops and it undermines the tendency to get attached and identified with all experience because experiences seem to be much more ephemeral than what we normally take it to be so there's a there's a kind of uh, equanimity that begins to arise the more we see experience in this more subtle way so this is the second level of uh of insight that just comes from developing the mindfulness practice it's not that we don't have thoughts and emotions it's not that we don't have sensations it's simply that we understand what emotions what sensations what thoughts are in a more deep penetrating way so we're not taking them to be more than what they are and it's this taking our emotions our thoughts our sensations our life experiences it's our taking them to be more than what they are that causes all the suffering that we see in our lives and around us it's the the misperceiving of how things are So I need to leave it here. I wanted to save some time for discussion. But um 
I'll pick this up probably not until later in December. I won't be here for the next two Wednesdays. I'll be on retreat. Um, but uh, Mara Young will speak next Wednesday. And then the following Wednesday, Gail Iverson will speak. And I think they'll probably be speaking on different subjects. So uh, I'll pick this up then again. Probably will be 15th, 16th, 17th of December. And then, just so you know, as long as I'm talking about dates, then Christmas Eve, we won't have a Wednesday night program. And then New Year's Eve, we will have a program, um, but it won't be our regular Wednesday night. We have our, I think for the last 16 years now, we've had an annual uh, New Year's Eve celebration where we do some meditation, we do some guided reflection on the year, and uh, we have some sharing, we have a nice potluck, we do some singing and listen to some music from some of our community members who are wonderful performers and have, bring in the New Year's in silence. So if you want to join us for part of that, the sign-up will be out probably in the middle of December for that event. But in any case, we have about 15 minutes now. If you have questions about the talk tonight, or even better, if you have some experiences in your formal or informal mindfulness practice that seem relevant to what I said tonight, please share that. What comes to mind? I'm Kathleen, and I was wondering, this is how I thought for that, but I was confused. I started, first I felt, and um, I don't know. At first, when we were concentrating on the buttocks on the cushion, I I was just right there. And then I started going, okay, it feels warm. I feel the skin stretching. Um, It seems to be yellow. And is that the piece that's imaging, or is that? Yeah, yeah. Well, only you'll know for sure. Because some thoughts um, can skillfully turn the attention back toward the actual experience. And some thoughts, even though they may appear like they're supporting the mindfulness, they're actually taking us away from the experience. Because we're analyzing, we're sort of thoughts leading to more thoughts as opposed to thoughts leading to the direct perception of sensation. So you just have to discern for yourself whether the thoughts are leading to more more continuity, more connection, or leading to just more thoughts. Yeah, Bonnie. So if I can continue that, mm-hmm. I, I tend to have a lot of imagery because that's what I work in. But you said that when you were doing this, that you saw yourself in that image is? I don't know how to tell the difference Yeah. Yeah, 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 sure do, because I think most of the time I don't know the difference either. I mean, most of the time in my daily life, I'm not discerning the difference between experience and my reaction and interpretation of experience. And uh, so just in terms of my own experience, you know, as I was feeling... Uh, probably similar, similarly to what Kathleen was saying, there was an initial contact with the sensations, but then very quickly, in a matter of a few seconds, uh, I noticed that 
see, it, the image doesn't even represent, I mean, it's not like if I could somehow project the image I have in my mind out there in that holographic screen, you would not recognize it as the buttocks against the cushion. You know, it's the, and the word in, that's used sometimes is nimitta. It's like the mind uh, creates a mental reflection of what's being known. It's, it's, it's like this is its habit is to sort of convert an, ex an experience to uh, sort of a, creates a package for it. And this allows for the development of language, you know, where we create words to represent things. And so the mind is doing this in a very primitive, simplistic way where it, it just creates an image. For me, it was just a kind of a darkness. You know, it's just... But see, what my mind did then is it fixated on that as if doing that was the equivalent of opening. See, more than anything, the thinking mind, the ego, it wants stability. So, and, it, and the way it's found that is through this process of fixation, usually we call uh, attachment. But I like fixation because it, it describes more viscerally the experience where the mind is, in a sense, gripping. Or the word the Buddha used, tanha, uh, like thirsting or clinging. The mind is like gripping, grasping, clinging to this object, to this mental image. But it doesn't even matter what the image is. It's the gripping that's relevant here. And when we open to Dhamma, the way things are, gripping isn't possible because nothing is staying the same long enough to grab a hold of it. Life as it actually is, is a process. It isn't a thing. There are no nouns anywhere to be found. Nouns only exist in, as concepts. And even concepts are also part of Dhamma. But there's some, through some magic, what we can do through a repetition, we recreate the same noun, the same concept, the same image. And it gives it the semblance of stability, continuity. Because we're not paying close attention. So the, the key here then is I, what really caught my eye, so to speak, was not that dark image, but the gripping in the mind. That's what taught me, or told me, that I had sort of removed myself from the movement of life into kind of a fixed position of Mark watching the buttocks, you know. And I wasn't sort of, because opening is kind of a, uh, like a free fall. I mean, moving into an experience is the, has the flavor of a free fall. It's very enlivening. It wakes us up because we're moving into the unknown, even with something as ordinary as the breath or sensation. Yeah? Um, I, was, I was noticing, like, especially as it reads, you're giving the names, by the way, um, that um, was, there was a lot of, um, I was noticing that mindfulness is focusing on being with the body, settling with the body. And so there's days when someone has when I have pain issues that I'd rather not, rather not be with. So, especially when I'm, when I'm doing my sitting. Right. Yeah, mindfulness of pain is a wonderful topic for discussion. Um, the, the short answer is that when you can be with the pain with enough balance in your mind, and that's a great object for awareness, but when your mind is tired or exhausted and you don't have the kind of presence and stability to be with the pain, then it is appropriate to practice in another way. So to work with hearing, open your eyes, work with seeing, 
there's many objects of awareness, even in this category of body, that you can work with. You could do walking practice, for example, is another option. Um, you can notice the different reactivity in the mind, so you're aware of the mind, the qualities of the mind. You can look at the unpleasantness itself as an object. So there's, but, but when the mind gets withered or exhausted from dealing with difficult experience, then it's good to take a break and go somewhere else. And that's often what you can use the breath. If you, when you don't have pain in your body, if you cultivate the habit of being mindful with the breath, then the nice thing about that is it becomes a habit so that even when there is pain, but you don't have the kind of presence to be able to be with the pain, then in a sense you can retreat to the breath, mindfulness of the breath. Even though right now it's not predominant, the pain in the knee is predominant, but I'm going to be mindful of the breath. And it's like taking a vacation, a really wholesome vacation. But you need to do the work up front. The same with loving-kindness practice. You know, a lot of people, they're in a crisis and they want to do the loving-kindness practice. But the best way is to have cultivated the practice for years so that when you're in a crisis, it's like a deep groove in the mind to go toward loving-kindness practice. And it really is a, a savior in a real sense. But you got to do the work before, we have to do the work before there's a real need for it. Yeah, Casey. I had a question about samadhi. Um, I think you said that it's a combination of mindfulness, effort, and concentration. Yes. And you know, there are moments when I'm meditating, and I feel that that sense of, I guess you'd say rapture or whatever, mm -hmm. that really good feeling. And, and it, it seems to be something that when I do, once I'm able to do more of that sit, and then even sits within the next few days, and I even seem to be a flip okay. When I'm not sitting sometimes, yeah. um, I'm not sure if I'm bullshitting myself or not, but it seems okay. That's called <laughs> doubt. <laughs> it's, no, it's important to catch that because um, it's easy to doubt ourselves. Like, is this real? And then you go, oh, that's doubt. But, but my, my point is, like, mm -hmm. sometimes I feel like I have that quality of being there, but I don't have that sense of rapture. I seem to have all the same components, but yeah. it isn't that same good feeling. And then also, Cycles, right? I can't do it at all, and, and I mean, like weeks where it's not, and then all of a sudden I'm back where I'm able to do it, and I don't know if it's five of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's kind of like, I don't well, know if that's a question. Actually. Well, I think I think what your question really is. I mean, it wasn't a question, but I think that the real point is. <laughs> I mean, you kind of you you describe your experience, and I think it's really good because it tells us that uh, our our practice is really to to understand what are the supporting causes that allow it to come to be. Because it is complex. It is a, it's like a series of different qualities that need to sort of all be in tune, in balance with one another, and then it's there. And sometimes it's kind of there, but not really there. And sometimes we're not even anywhere close. And, and through just this interest in it, we'll get to see. Like, Wanting it to be there is not one of those qualities that help it be there, <laughs> you know, because it's like a leaning forward. So one of the problems with having the experience of samadhi and the pleasantness that can arise, that wholesome pleasantness that can arise from it, is that then we crave it. And then, but we'll start to notice, because out of frustration, that the wanting it 
you start to discern how the wanting it gets in the way. That like one of the supporting factors for it arising is not wanting it to be there. You know, it's like a relaxation in the mind. And so then we can intentionally cultivate that carefree attitude, not careless, you know, but carefree. Like we're doing, we're wholehearted, but we're carefree. And so there's like all these different qualities that we have to sort of attune and recognize. And that's, uh, that's one of the reasons why these discourses are good. The Buddha is sort of painting a picture of like what needs to be there and what doesn't need to be there, what can't be there. So we know what to abandon. And so one of the things you can do, Case, is when you do notice that you're in the vicinity of that wholeness in the mind and the pleasantness that comes from that wholeness, that unification, then you can, maybe not in that moment, but maybe later as it falls apart and you're not there anymore, in hindsight then, reflect about how, like, what were the qualities that might have supported that samadhi coming to be, you know? Was the mind relaxed or tight? Was the mind happy or caught in some kind of afflictive state? You know, was there interest or was the mind scattered? You know, you just you can just even check out like the seven factors of awakening that we've talked about recently, and you can say, you know, where was there interest? Was there energy? Was there some kind of joy? Even if it was just in the beginning stages of joy, was there a feeling of tranquility? Of one-pointedness of equanimity, you know. So you can kind of, oh yeah, yeah, those are, yep. So, and sometimes those factors, just the seven factors or whatever list you want to use, the right balance of wholesome factors, just in a sense randomly come into being. And so, you know, we're right there. But one of the most important factors for the arising of samadhi is a wholesome happiness, because when we're happy, we're generally interested, right? And we're generally relaxed because we're happy. We don't have to go looking for it. <laughs> and because we're already happy, we tend to relax. That's the tranquilizing half of the equation. But we're happy. We're also interested in the experience. You know, generally we feel alive when we're happy. So a lot of times when people have spontaneous experiences of samadhi, it's when they have a pleasant experience that isn't too charged. Uh, yeah, ultimately it moves from a more excited kind of happiness to a more still, peaceful kind of happiness. So the happiness becomes more refined, which is it it's becomes a more quiet kind of happiness. But I don't know if that was the question you you were asking. I think or you're going through something awful. Yeah. Uh, child dies, something. You know, it doesn't mean you can't well, samadhi in the sense that we're talking about it, it doesn't mean you can't get concentrated. You can be very concentrated in your despair. But it's not a whole, a samadhi is a wholesome concentration so that when we're caught in an afflictive state and really concentrated there, the mind is distorted. It's not seen clearly. The, the pain, the unwillingness to be open to the pain of that loss uh, keeps the mind from being clear. So there's like a big distortion. And so samadhi means there's no distortion. So in a sense, it does require a certain happiness. But you can go right into something very painful, into a very deep state of samadhi. Because what happens is if you open, like what Louis was saying, to pain, when your mind is in balance, you're not withered, not exhausted, 
you do open to the pain is really intense, but there's enough presence to hold it, to be with it. And what happens at some point, the pleasantness of the unification of mind outweighs the unpleasantness of the pain. And so it becomes a pleasurable experience, even though the anchor for the concentration is the pain itself. And that's true with emotional pain or uh, physical pain. So sometimes people have very profound opening at times of great loss, but they have to go through this process of opening to the pain, which feels like a kind of death. I mean, to open to that sense of loss or physical pain is not so easy, but if we can really do it authentically, the mind will concentrate deeply. Because that experience is so intense, it really captures the attention. So there are advantages of paying attention to unpleasant experience for that reason. And we need to leave it here. So let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words, take a breath or two together. Appreciating this great path of practice that we found out about and to be inspired to put it into practice as a way of deeply caring for ourselves, our own life, and also a way of caring for others. May we all be free from suffering and free from the roots of suffering. And thanks again, everyone, for coming. Wishing you all a happy Thanksgiving. I want to thank Patty.